Fathers out there and friends everywhere, join the conversation. I'm David Wilkinson. I'm a husband, I'm a dad of three, and I'm a storyteller who's interested in talking to and learning from distinct fathers. And when possible, I like to have those conversations under the stars on my backyard deck. So pull up a chair and welcome to Dad Matters. In this episode, I sit down with my friend, Chris McKim. Chris is a true soul surfer, and as a boy, he found refuge on a board on the waves of the Pacific California coastline. He also understands rhythm. As a studio musician, a student, and most importantly, as a single father of two boys, Ryan, who is 13, and Sean, who is 10. As Chris says, along with his transparency comes skeletons, all of which he's glad to share with other dads. This is how deep I am. I am trying to figure out a way to take cocaine with me on the plane to San Diego so that I don't miss it. That's how far gone I was. But all of that really brings me to a place that makes me question myself as a father. When both of my sons were born, I was high. There in the hospital, I was high. Dads, in each conversation, I try to ask myself three questions. Number one, where do I recognize myself in this conversation? Number two, what tools can I borrow from this dad? And number three, what's one thing that I can try this week? That's it. So I hope you ask yourself those same three questions. Let's get the conversation started. Test one, two, three. Test one, two, three. I'll wait for the airplane to pass. How's my level? Check one. About the same? Your levels are good. Good. Yep. Chris McKim. How you doing, Chris? I'm very well, David. This is the best studio I have been in in a long time. When I say most studios, being a musician, I'm usually in an enclosed room that is climate controlled and sound controlled. And here we are sitting out on this beautiful back deck, multi-layered deck beautiful stars out tonight we've got the woods in the background yeah, my woods sit right up against my backyard the birds it's my favorite are chirping part of the house. we're outdoors we're outdoors and, that, and here and, we are and we're recording that's right and uh because this podcast is about dad matters i can't think of a better location guys like to be outdoors yeah I at mean, least guys in our age group now sure. i can't speak to you know millennial uh fathers out there or anything like that but well for some they might love being on a fishing boat, you know, yep. for me, I prefer a golf course or a tennis court. But That's right. Outdoors is outdoors and it's manly. So I'm trying to think uh, how long we've known each other. How long have we known each other, Chris? Probably going on four years. I was going to say five. So, okay. Yeah. We'll split the difference. Yeah, four and a half. Four and a half. Yeah, let's say yeah, four let's and go, a half. Let's go with the say four and a half. But uh, fathers out there, uh, Chris is a guy who I trust implicitly. He's one of those people where, you know, if you can see a snake coming, you can also see people of integrity coming a mile away. Chris is one of those guys who has tons of integrity and transparent integrity. That's one of my favorite things about you. Thank you. And um, There's lots of skeletons that come in front of that transparency, <laughs> though, so it makes it a little easier to just... Rather than spin a web of lies, <laughs> um, it's just easier on the brain to not have to keep so many things in, you know, in line. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we're after transparency on this thing. Yeah. Uh, the whole goal is so that guys just like me uh, can listen to 
other fathers, fathers from all different walks of life. And you're someone who I find particularly interesting on many levels, just from a friendship standpoint. I mean, both of us are very creative individuals. You're a musician. Um, I'm a storyteller. Actually, we're both storytellers, right? I mean, it's documentaries, whatever. genres, but still storytellers. And it seems every day we find something else that we have in common. We love movies. We love film. We love Steven Spielberg. Love the Berg. So many different tastes that have aligned. Again, we discover a new thing every once in a while that, again, it's just kind of like asking the question, you know, how long have we known we're brothers? Yeah, that's right. So, And because this is audio only, you all don't have the benefit that I do of seeing the glorious Gandalf-esque beard, uh, goatee. <laughs> what is that on your chin? I love it, whatever this you call that. is what I call my Reformation beard. Your Reformation beard. I uh, like that. If you picture Billy Gibbons with just the goatee right on the front, yep. that's kind of... That's spot on. Again, being up in years and being gray since I was 24. You've been gray since you were 24? My hair has been gray. I couldn't grow a beard until I was in my 30s. It grew in very splotchy. Okay. So it's it's peppered with red, again, like the Irishman that I am. Right. But for the most part, any beard that I've ever had has been white. Huh. My Um, kids always told me that because I'm gray as well, that God cut a line, mm-hmm. a, a horizontal line, I guess, yeah. to distinguish between the red. I got a little red. Yeah. I got a little salt and pepper. I definitely got some gray. Yeah, it, um, it definitely follows that jawline. Yeah. There's a lot more red in the mustache area. And, and a the, lot more gray below the chin. Below the chin. Yep. Before we talk about you as a son or you as a father, I mean, I know you to be a very creative individual. Mm-hmm. I know about all the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff that you do yeah. on various projects. Actually, to our listeners out there, Chris is composing uh, for me for our audiovisual book for a uh, children's book that I've recently wrote uh, along with my partner, Tim Newton, and... Um, Chris is a brilliant composer and he's a very generous composer. So I know you do a lot of behind the scenes stuff and I know you're happy to do that and you have no desire to put a spotlight on you, yes. but that's exactly what I want to do right now. I want to put a spotlight on you and, and just hear kind of who you are and why you are. Sure. So whatever kind of comes out is great. Sure. I was born in Southern Indiana to parents that grew up eight miles apart from each other. Went to the same grade school, went to the same middle school, went to the same high school. Were high school sweethearts, then went to college together. Children of the 60s. Ah. Uh, they grew up very conservative. But then when they hit the big city of Terre Haute, Indiana, to go to Indiana State, I think like most kids of that era, life hit them and yeah. life was a party. I was an unplanned child. But as things went back in the day, uh, you got married So my mom was 20. My dad was 21 Mm -hmm. when they decided to have me. They went to college an hour away from where both sets of grandparents lived. So for the first two years of my life, um, I was kind of semi-raised by my grandparents, which that has a lingering effect later in life. My father also being a child of the 60s, was also a child of the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. in the sense that um, in later conversations with him, he didn't really get the chance to do what he wanted to do in life. 
many of his college friends who either flunked out or dropped out ended up being drafted and went to Vietnam. My father did graduate from college and in essence was forced to pick a branch to serve in. So he decided to join the Air Force, Mm -hmm. became a navigator. And so we headed off to Northern California to live in Sacramento for a couple of years. Okay, Um, That was the beginning of our life in California, which carries a lot of time for me. And you were how old when you moved to Sacramento? I was two by the time we moved. So I I don't remember a lot of it. I have vague mental images of it, but we moved to Sacramento first and then dad finished navigator school. Um, We were then stationed in Southern California in Riverside, a place called March Air Force Base. Where's Riverside? Um, Northeast of Los Angeles. Okay. Dad was a B-52 navigator, which he was, again, uh, serendipitously brought into the war, stationed in Guam. So they ran missions out of Guam to drop bombs in Vietnam and came back. Young, young man, straight out of college, uh, being given multi-million dollar pieces of equipment to operate. So these guys worked hard, lived hard, partied hard. Mm -hmm. I can recall asking, where is dad? Because he would go for extended tours. It would just be me and my mom and many of the other Air Force wives who had kind of congregated together. Um, But my time growing up thinking about that in Southern California was wonderful. It was a great time. Were you around a lot of other kids uh, whose dads were on deployment, that sort of thing? Not as many, but I was around a diverse number of children. I can remember uh, my first grade class in uh, in that area, we had a Mexican day mm-hmm. because half the class was Hispanic. Mm-hmm. So all the Hispanic moms came in and made quesadillas, and you know, and I just I loved it. Gotcha. It was great. We learned the Mexican hat dance, and you know, we learned the songs, and I just it was just part of the culture. So you there got was, immersed into a lot of different cultural experiences. Yeah, there was there was not a lot of separation of black and white and right. Hispanic. We all just kind of played together. That's amazing. Um, there were boys down the down the street that I played basketball with. We jumped our bicycles uh-huh. with. Uh, we rode around a dirt track in an open field in that area, and it was just. An innocent time. Right. We were several miles away from the Riverside Raceway. We'd ride our bikes and watch cars do time trials. There were several avocado groves that were in the area. Right. We'd ride our bikes for miles and we'd go to this avocado grove and we'd sneak in and we'd pluck them and eat them, pluck Mm -hmm. them and eat them. And then we'd ride home. We'd be gone from sunup till sundown. And, you know, Disneyland was less than an hour away in Anaheim. So, Made several trips there. My grandparents would come to visit from Indiana, and that would be, they'd ask me, what do you want to do? I want to go to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a big Peter Pan fan, very imaginative child, loved music, loved TV, was able to memorize songs and sing them in pitch at a very early age. Incidentally, Peter Pan's my favorite Disney Childhood See, song. again, we're brothers. I I'm know. telling you what, I, man. I had to say it because I figured you know It's one of my favorites. Yeah. So by the time I was six, dad got transferred, and we moved to upstate New York for a few years. Yeah. Um, total culture shock. Coming from Southern California, where I spent a lot of time at the beach, learned to surf. Right. Had never seen snow in my entire life. Didn't know that Santa dressed in a red jacket and black boots and a hat because of the cold. Every time I went and saw Santa at the mall, it was Santa's in a 
Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops and a surfboard. Mm-hmm. That was the Southern California culture. It was just laid back and it was cool and everybody got along and everybody loved music. Do you feel like that that culture informed in, has informed who you are now? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I, I spent a lot of my childhood in Florida and my buddies you know, would show up at school with their wetsuits on underneath their clothes. No doubt about and it. And then after you know classes, they'd hit the beach. Yeah. And when, it was a lifestyle. It was... Absolutely. I mean, they were very chill. You know, most of these guys that I ran with, I mean, they just, they just lived to be out there on the water. And yeah. they enjoyed when the waves would subside. Yeah. And they were just sitting and waiting. Yes. They enjoyed that just as much as when a good uh, swell would come in. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The working out to get past the first break and wait for that perfect wave. Yeah, there's a zen to it. What beach did um, you uh, surf? Well, as I grew up later, when we moved to New York and then later came back to California, there was a divorce that took place. So I ended up spending many a summer with my father in Southern California and then with my mother in the New York area or the Chicago area. And it was pretty devastating to me because my mom and I then moved back to where we had come from in upstate New York. My father then moved, relocated to Southern California, a year later got remarried and when the divorce had occurred, he basically said, go with your mom. So we were distant. We were kind of separated. I was never really close to him because he was never there a lot. Up until that time that I was 12, um, dad spent a lot more time with his friends. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he took me to baseball games and did various things with me, but um, one of the things that I seem to recall is asking, can we do this, and hearing no more often than yes. Than yes. No, we can't because I'm busy. Uh-huh. Come to find out busy was he was going out, hitting the bars with his buddies. Okay. So as that move to Southern California occurred, all the trappings of coastal life came rushing at me. In my early teens, we were much closer to the beach. I could ride a bicycle there before I could drive. So the beach itself became a place of refuge, Mm. you know, again, sun up to sundown. Mm -hmm. I was also very active in sports. I played football. I played basketball. I played baseball. I played tennis. I played golf. Of those, tennis became the main sport that I was driven in. So if I wasn't outside playing on a tennis court, I was at the beach surfing. Yeah. To answer your question, beach-wise, there's a southernmost point called Dana Point. So from Dana Point up through Newport Beach, through Huntington Beach, and then north of there is a place called Seal Beach, which is the next location before you hit Long Beach. Okay. And so that's quite a distance. That's yeah. quite a long stretch of beaches and every place in between that I could surf, I have surfed. You surfed them all. Yeah. Yes. Just yes. because you could. Just because I could. <laughs> and uh, if there was anything that made me get up early in the morning before the sun came up, it was that. Uh, Many a memory, standing there on the side of the road, watching the sun come up. Memories like that of my time, my childhood, were vast. But a lot of those memories, again, involved my dad providing those things, but not really being with me, being around. That's interesting Um, that you talked about the beach as a place of refuge. I I suspect for a lot of people that in one one form or another, there's there's some place of refuge that, that you go to. And I remember 
as you were saying that, I was thinking about some of the guys that I ran with. They definitely looked at the beach as a place that was safe. Yeah. It was where they everything made sense. Yeah. And they were free to uh, create the experiences that were in front of them that they wanted to. Yeah. And they didn't feel like they were... You know, either restricted as as teenagers, or if yeah. there was some serious issues that were going on. Yeah, there was no yelling, there was no chores, there yeah. was no disappointments, there was no unfulfilled expectations yeah. at the beach or the basketball court or the tennis court. Sports became a place where I felt like I could create my own uh-huh. identity. Okay. All the while, again, saying my father built a wonderful life. I'm an only child. Okay. Um, so I think that has a lot to do. I think if I'd had siblings, things might have been radically different. But I was fiercely independent, fiercely confident in whatever I wanted to do, whatever I wanted to try. I seemed to be good at whatever I wanted to do. Did you have a sense of adventure? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was willing to go anywhere, try anything, yeah. ride anything, jump anything, uh, jump off anything. Yeah. It's that Peter Pan yeah, know, yeah. sense of adventure. <laughs> Um, and California is a wonderful place to experience all those things. It's a great yeah. backyard to do that. But again, looking back on it with fond memories, lots of adventures. My dad was, and still is, a very adventurous, life-loving, life of the party, always had a great story. Him and I are very much alike mm-hmm. in that way, mm-hmm. which is also why I believe created much of the tension between us oh. looking back on life now we were so much alike and it was a conformity of wills i wanted to do what i wanted to do and he wanted me to do what he wanted me to do yep and we clashed constantly and the interesting thing is i have two boys Uh, one is 13 and one is nine he's getting ready to turn 10 next week but my oldest child is me made over yeah how's that feel scary I keep calling my mom and apologizing yeah. a lot. <laughs> it's like fantastic and scary it is. all at once. It's great because I know what he's thinking. Yeah. And so I can get in his head and tell him, you don't want to do that. Yeah. And he's like, how do you know? Yeah. How do get you out know of my these head, things? Man. Yeah. You're psyching me out, dude. <laughs> but yet at the same time, we clash just like my father and I clashed. Hmm. Before we get too uh, yes. far into you as a father, let's step back real quick and talk about as you moved uh, through high school into your early adulthood years. Yeah, great, great, great direction. Um, I spent my years after, again, the divorce, I I lived with my mom primarily. Yep. And so my mom got remarried after that to a wonderful man who him and I are complete opposites. I'm extroverted and outgoing. He is very introverted and shy and quiet. He is and has been the best thing that has ever happened to my mom. They are still married. I think they just celebrated their 34th wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. But he also was in the Air Force. He had been an Air Force captain, but because of some circumstances in his life, after captain, he was not going to get promoted to major so he was done with the Air Force. Yeah. My sophomore year of high school, we moved from upstate New York to the Chicago area. Well, I'm just out of curiosity, going from freshman to sophomore, the transition to a different school mm-hmm. where your high school years are interrupted. Yes. How, can you just real quick at least talk about that? I'm curious how that was for you. That transition was actually wonderful. The harder transition was when um, I moved from California 
in sixth grade back to where we'd lived in New York for seventh grade. Okay. My seventh grade, eighth grade, and freshman year were very, very difficult for me. And so I blame my father a okay. lot. He was the cause of why we had to move. Okay. It wasn't all his fault, but again, as a hormonally imbalanced 13-year-old who has mood swings as wide and as high as Niagara Falls, it was exceedingly difficult. And he was probably an easy go-to. He was an easy target, yes, because he was far away. He was distant. My father was always really good about providing financially, you know, and helping my mom out. An interesting tidbit coming back from that, since we were Air Force family— once the divorce occurred, my mom lost all her rights to be on the Air Force Base. Hmm. Um, so she couldn't shop at the commissary. She couldn't oh, shop at the BX. Yeah. But I could. And I would go in and do our grocery shopping as a seventh grader. Things like that that I looked at and thought, I shouldn't have to be doing this. Right. Um, but looking back on it now, my mom sacrificed so much for me uh-huh. and for us just to make it. So, you know, little things like that that I look back on and think my kids didn't have to deal with that. Even though my kids, um, I've been divorced since 2011. My kids' situation is different because they've never left the school that they're in. And I've done that intentionally. Tell me about uh, in your 20s where you and your dad were with that. Was was that um, anger that you put? Towards him, did that carry through into your young yes, years? Yes, absolutely. I had been under the impression that my dad basically said, go, go with your mom. And then a couple years later, he's asking me to come back. He's wanting me to live with him because his second wife uh, wanted to have a family and she couldn't have children, but he already had a son, so there I was. And so at that point, I was easily manipulated by money and things and at that time too struggling with my identity as a kid it was like well I could just be more popular if I had the right shirt or had the right jacket I was very tempted by those kinds of things because again I felt like I was owed that uh, by him looking back on it now not in any way but that was just the mindset at the that time, I was, though, that was a strong feeling. I, I didn't have any foundation or belief in any faith. I was not raised in church. Mm-hmm. I would go back to Indiana for my summers sometimes, and I would go to church with my grandparents. But to me, it was that was what you did if you didn't, if you couldn't think through things. That was my attitude. Gotcha. For me, being a child of the '80s, and that at that point, you know, the things you had, the materialism was your identity. I very much resonated with the Karate Kid story. Kid with a single mom moves into an area that he really can't afford. Everybody lets him know that he doesn't fit in. Mm -hmm. He's got a lot of anger. A lot of anger. So he... You know, he wants to learn karate so that he can fight. Of course, this old sage, Mr. Miyagi, you know, tells him, you know, no fight, you defend. And then, of course, the grand story of him, you know whipping the bully's butt at the end, right. and then him telling him, you're all right, La Russa, right. really resonated with me as a very impressionable early teen. Um, so here I am fighting all these things, but through that, sports was the golden thread. Sports was my ticket. Um, I could go to any college that I wanted to because I was 
pretty decent tennis player. Okay. So my dad tried to use that and say, hey, you know, if you'll move here for your senior year, you can establish in-state residency. We, we toured Stanford. We went to USC. We looked at UCLA. Wow. And I had offers from several schools in the, big, in the Pac-10 to come play tennis. And I was, again, very drawn and very tempted by that. But I also realized, too, that it would have devastated my mom, who had given so much. And my mom and I remain very, very close to this day. She was my, my rock my core mm-hmm. through all of these things, I realized that I couldn't do that to her. So here we are moving once again and coming back to your original question, how was that transition? To me, that transition from upstate New York to Chicago was a wonderful transition because I could reinvent myself. I was somebody new. I could kind of create my own reputation Um, For lack of a better term, again, without any theological constraints, it was a moment of manifest destiny. Hmm. I had been given a new lease. I had been given a new fresh start. I could create my own storyline. So I built myself up for the moment to say, this is it, right? Kenny Loggins, make no mistake where you are, right? (laughs) We Um, just referenced Kenny Loggins. This is it. You know, you're going no further, right? Um, This was the make or break. So this is Chicago. This is in the Chicago area. This is Chicago, yes, and so you've you're you've kind of got a new lease on life. You you can recreate yourself as so many people. Yeah, they they love to have that opportunity to kind of reinvent themselves. Yes, you still are probably dealing with some uh, anger towards your dad. A lot. There's yes. separation there. There's geographic separation. There's yes. mental separation, and so and still a lot of unresolved anger. Okay. Um, one of the things that, and I, and I still struggle with this now, was my dad used to make a lot of promises. Where, where the music side of things comes in, um, late in high school, I overtrained playing tennis. And I developed tendonitis in both knees, which disrupted my basketball, which disrupted my tennis. You got into music through sports injuries. Yes. All of those things which ended that future sports career and the potential of going to any and all of those colleges all of a sudden dried up. And I became very depressed, very suicidal. How old are we talking about now? Uh, 16. 16, okay. Yeah. I had basically been bugging, bugging my dad, buy me a drum set, buy me a drum set. I want to play drums. I want to play drums. For no other reason than just to play along with records. That background with my father, who was a huge music fan, but not gifted at playing an instrument, he had a humongous record collection. Oh, really? Humongous. And he still has it to this day. I okay. mean, we're talking vinyl. Give me give me a few of the, the gold vinyls. Oh, gosh. What are the ones that, um, like, right now you're like, oh, I wish I had those in my collection? Uh, Boston's first album. Okay. My dad liked a lot of R&B. He liked okay. George Benson. He liked oh, Al Jarreau. Yeah. And so it became a regular practice for my dad to hit the record store every week and buy whatever was the latest thing. Queen records. Oh, my gosh. He wouldn't allow me to touch any of his stuff, but I would always ask him, hey, will you put on this record? Elton John, Billy Joel, um, whatever was hot. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, 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 the double album. Listen to that thing relentlessly. One of the most amazing um, vinyl inset artwork things Absolutely. Ever, I would literally stare at it for hours. Yeah. I would read all the liner notes 
of all these different bands, but his tastes were really diverse too. You know, one day he'd buy a Queen record. Mm -hmm. The next week he'd buy a Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings record. (laughs) You know, I actually do know all the words to Lugenbach, Texas, and can (laughs) sing it in both voices. Thank you to Dad. He was a huge Neil Diamond fan. I had a great appreciation for music. It was poured into me. Um, Again, could sing it, could recognize the differences in the notes, the rhythms. So all of that spilled over into me wanting to express myself through drums as a side hobby. Then when I got injured, my world crumbled. My potential future crumbled. So music became, again, like the beach, that source of refuge, that rescuing place. And yet it came from your father. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, again, if you're writing a story, if we're writing a screenplay about this, we have the perfect occasion for irony because the thing that you love the most is the thing that hurts you the most, which in turn produces the greatest end result. Yeah, yeah. That's screenwriting 101 for those of you that are listening, maybe. (laughs) It was late in high school, too, that, again, it's just really part of my story. I had a faith experience. I wanted to date a girl and she basically told me, my father won't let me date you unless you come to youth group. And I had no reference or idea what a youth group was. So I went, I agreed to go. What's the harm? Well, it was there that I began to see other kids that I knew from my large high school, but I'd never really spent time with or got to know And again, whereas all of my other friends were disappearing because I was no longer the hotshot basketball guy or the tennis guy, I found a new group of friends that actually just kind of loved me because I was me. Mm. And I was impacted immensely by that along with this girl, just the people involved. There was something different about this group of people. They didn't just get together. It wasn't just a club. There was something of substance here. Mm. I began to to hear things about real faith, real identity. And I was transformed by that. Uh, Maybe there was something more to life. Um, But it was also at that time, too, that my dad had kind of expressed, okay, now you kind of need to get serious about life. Can't be a musician. Your sports career is done. What are you going to do? It was time to buckle down, go to a real college, get a business degree, do something like that. So again, we clashed, and I sensed this call into ministry at that time. And so rather than going to mom and dad's alma mater, Indiana State, where I could study business or whatever, I took a different route and ended up wanting to go to a Bible college. Okay. That did not settle well with my dad. Yeah. Although, again, here's the irony again, he was the one that paid for it all. Well, I only stayed a year because I was also studying music. And through that, through the association of that school with another school where where more of the music was dealt with, Um, I learned from a few professors that if I wanted to make a living as a musician, I needed to just get out there and play. Yeah. And if you could find a gig, take it, you can always come back to school. Yeah. That's what I did after a year. You started hustling. Yeah. 
I did. Um, started doing some work around the Chicago area. Shortly after that, though, I, through a mutual friend, met who would become my wife. Mm-hmm. A group of musicians that she knew were relocating to Nashville to pursue uh, record label interest. Okay. What year is this? Uh, this was 1989. Still a very big music scene. I was 20 years old. And so I packed up my drums in my 79 Toyota Celica hatchback. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all the seats thrown down and my drum set in there, trucked off to Evansville once again. And I auditioned for this band. And we hit it off immediately. The irony was that as this band decided to move, the only person that wasn't moving or relocating was the drummer in their band. So that's why I was auditioning. I was the second guy that auditioned, and I was the last guy. Okay. I got the gig, so I moved to Nashville. (laughs) Only made Dad all the prouder, right? (laughs) You're listening to my conversation with guest dad, Chris McKim. But before we go to the second part of that conversation, I had a thought. When Chris was talking about his background, uh, he he mentioned promises uh, a couple times. And this is kind of a sidestep thought. But it reminded me how, as a dad, I've made promises that turned into broken promises. And that's pretty much the gist of what I want to talk about here we have to be really, really careful that we do not become the dad of broken promises to our children. It's not hard to do because when you get excited about something and you want to do something to make your kids happy, you can really easily say something about, well, hey, we'll do this, we'll go here. Then money gets tight, schedules change, And before you know it, that broken promise is never talked about again. When I was in college, I had a friend who was going to be getting married. And he kept telling me several times, you're going to be my best man. You're going to be my best man at my wedding. It's going to be really great. I didn't ask for it. He kept saying it, though. He said it a lot. Then he got married, and I wasn't even invited to the wedding. Um, I saw him again several years later at a conference and he said something about, Hey, where are you staying? I'll, I'll come visit you. And I remember distinctly thinking, there's no way I'm going to even tell you where I'm staying because there's no way you're going to even come and visit because you're the guy who can't keep a promise. Now, is that something that I'm holding on to, to this day? No, I mean, I remember it, but think about how much worse it is if it's your own dad telling you something that you didn't ask for that's a promise that ends up being nothing more than a broken promise. We have to be really, really careful about that. We have to keep our excitement in check, our emotion in check. And basically what it comes down to is All our kids really need for us to do is love them and be present. We do not have to go out of our way to make promises that we either intend to keep and don't or never have any intention of keeping. Broken promises break hearts. Pure and simple, dads, 
be warned, be mindful, watch out for the broken promise. Don't do it. Just rein it in, man. Keep it inside. And as always, dads, thanks for listening to the podcast. Dads, you've probably heard the label involved dads. That just means that you're present in your child's life. But Dad Matters exists to help you move from being involved to being engaged with your kids. And the more effectively engaged you are, the more connected and confident you will feel about your relationship with your kids. Think of it this way. It's similar to climbing a mountain. And if being involved with your child is like the base camp, then the summit is engagement. I want to help you summit because I want you to enjoy what it feels like to be confident and connected to your kids. Here's the thing about climbing to a summit. Climbers who summit always plan and they always respect the climb. And dads, it's the same with your kids. You have to plan for it. That's why I have a free action tool for you. It's called Six Tips to Effectively Engage Your Child. Just go to my website, dadmatters.org. Right there on the main page, click Free Tool. Again, just go to my website, dadmatters.org. And on the main page, just click the Free Tool button. All right, dads, pull up a chair for the second part of my conversation with guest dad, Chris McKim. So, um, moved to Nashville, and that was June of 89. In uh, July of 89, my dad and I jumped on a plane to go to England. Okay. He had accumulated a whole bunch of frequent flyer miles, and he said, hey, let's, again, that spirit of adventure, right? Let's take a trip. Now, I'm curious. Yes. When your dad says, hey, go to, let's go to England. Yeah. Is there any, in your mind intent on his part to maybe patch old old uh, things up or was it just hanging out father and son? In my mind it's both. Okay. I believe this knowing my father, there's things that I have lots of regrets over. Things that I wish that I could go back and change. And I know there are things that haunt him and I really think that my dad would love nothing more than to be able to fix it. Sure. But obviously, you can't go back in time and redo it, so what can we do now? With my father growing up poor, to him, money was the answer to everything. So, rather than having us sit down and say, hey, I felt abandoned about this, or hey, what are you thinking? We've really never talked on that level Mm -hmm. before. Little further down the line after that, I got married young. My dad actually did ask my mom... Is he getting married because of, you know, like we had, was it an unplanned pregnancy? Mm -hmm. The answer was no. Mm -hmm. We just knew that we wanted to be together. Mm -hmm. So again, even in my mind, that that doubting me, in other words, it's never always quite good enough. Yeah, That's kind of been the underlying tone in much of our relationship, which has shaped me, I believe, in ways to end up wanting to be a people pleaser, Mm. needing to seek approval, Mm -hmm. um, wanting people to think that I'm good at what I do. Mm -hmm. You had asked earlier, and what is it that I do? Well, coming from and stemming from the creative aspect of music, when I moved here, kind of had a long career in the music business um, as a player, as a road guy, um, toured with some different folks who are pretty well-known, 
had some ups, had some downs, mm-hmm. kind of been more of a hired gun, yep. an independent guy. Yep. But what I've really found solace in in the last several years has been being a music producer, being the person that kind of spearheads the artist's creativity. Okay, It's very much a mentor-like role. Mm-hmm. People have asked me, what does it take to be a music producer? Um, I think that the best trait of a music producer is being the biggest fan of your artist. Yeah. Because you then become their chief encourager. Yeah. You become the person that they trust the most mm-hmm. with the thing that they hold dearest, which is their own art. And as a people pleaser, you probably want to pour integrity into that person a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to be able to tell them this is great right. and encourage them, but also having the finesse to be able to say this is great, but I think it can be better. Uh-huh. That's very. That's a very fine line in dealing with people. So t- let's go back to real quick. Where, uh, so you, you had gotten married. Your dad was questioning uh, you about... Is this kind of a repeating history kind of thing? Yes. Was it an unplanned pregnancy? This and that. So, pick up there okay. and 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 move forward with because I'm curious what how, what played out over the next several years. What played out over the next several years there, which is much of the '90s, was um, things were progressing away from arena rock to the grunge scene. Yep. The Seattle alternative sound. Yep. We were right in the middle of that because we were not an alternative band. Our our band, um, well, if you can kind of picture pouring in a little Journey, a little Foreigner, a little yeah. Pat Benatar, <laughs> a little of this, um, a little of Boston. Uh-huh. Um, that was our that was our sound. Okay, which three years prior would have been huge. But yeah. it just so happened that 1990 completely different sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our band then dissolved. We just happened to go to church in Franklin, Tennessee, at a place that had a number of artists that were there, and I befriended one of them, who was pretty well known in the Christian music scene. I then started traveling with him and worked for him for a while. Okay. I get to do what I'm doing musically. Mm-hmm. I'm gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm back on Sunday. My wife is working. Um, she's working retail, she's working a bookstore, so that's a lot of stress. The band that I told you about that I'd moved here, she had actually been a part of. Uh But part of the thing that happens in the music industry is when you begin to listen to sources outside of you, they're going to tell you what they think will make you successful. Right. And one of the elements that was going to make that band successful was that my wife was not going to be involved in it. Oh, wow. So the guitar player, who was great friends with my wife, because they had gone to college together, had to break her heart and tell her that she wasn't going to be a part of the new endeavor. Okay. So I think er early on in our first year of marriage, my wife suffered two traumatic events, the loss of her mother, who she was very close to, and the loss of her, um, the loss of her art being taken away. Yeah, that's a huge identity. That's a destroyer of identity. Absolutely, that was our first year of marriage, and not being together every day made things very rocky, very difficult. Sure. So that's where we end up. Part of me then wants to help her write songs to kind of do her own thing. Okay. Um, 
it's it's good, but it's not what it was. It's not as satisfying. She feels like at times maybe I'm patronizing her or I'm doing this just because. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really was doing it out of a sheer love for her. But I that's easy to get in your head over that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and so that becomes another tension sure. between us and our marriage. Yep. All the while, again, dealing with what are you doing now? When are you going to do this? When are you going to settle it? When are you going to go back to school? These are the things I'm hearing from from dad. Okay, I was going to ask. How much are you Where make, is this coming from? How, mu- how much are you making? Much of success to him is based around that dollar figure. Okay. As a good friend of mine in the music business, he knows who he is if he's listening to this, said, said many years ago, uh, the music business is snacker famine. ouch and i've always laughed at that because it is funny but it's funny because in ways it's true yeah you scramble and you work hard and you bust your tail to try to get get something going it never it never lives up to what you thought it was going to be or it's never going to be that thing that ultimately breaks through wow which even for me later became something that caused me to burn out made me lose my love of music and playing just for the sheer love of playing. Mm -hmm. Um, When the music became a job and when it became too much pressure, I had to step away from it. Um, So I did. I took some time off, played a lot of golf, Mm -hmm. played too much golf probably. I played so much golf that I got better and better like I was when I was a kid and began teaching it. So I thought, okay, here's a different career shift. I'm going to think about teaching golf, maybe try to be a professional, you know, try to qualify, maybe join one of the mini tours. This is interesting. Now we have a music injury that's bringing you back to sports. Totally. And it's an emotional wound that's bringing me back to the sports. It was a total pipe dream because I remember one time Marsha and I, that was her name, drove to Memphis for me to play in a tournament in Millington, Tennessee. I had no idea where Millington was. This was 96, I remember, because we were listening to that thing you do, singing along at the top of our lungs. <laughs> catchy. And it's catchy. I, I, it is. I got the hiccups, and from Jackson to Millington, could not stop hiccuping. Oh, my I, gosh. Literally, first tee, took the first swing. My back seized. I fell on the ground. I couldn't move. I had to, I had to withdraw. From hiccups? From the it hiccups. It started from that? Yes. Yes. So that's crazy. It really was. I have never in my life had hiccups that long. I did everything I could to try to get rid of them. How bizarre. And okay, I'm fooling myself here. This is never going to, I'm, you know, my aspirations of being Greg Norman are never going to come about. Part of me too is probably looking back on it as my father going, you need to snap out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. You're living in a bubble. You're living very unrealistically. To me, it was my last chance, my last gasp at trying to do something great. Gotcha. Life took a really, really drastic turn. Okay. Let's talk about that. Memorial Day, 1998. We loved hospitality. My wife loved to cook. She loved to just make up a whole bunch of stuff and have a bunch of friends over. We, we wanted to open our home just to let anybody come and go as they pleased. So we were planning a big Memorial Day cookout. So she was at the store in Cool Springs, 
pushing her cart around, and she passes out, hits her head on the floor. I get a phone call. This is the Kroger manager. Just wanted to let you know that your wife passed out. She's here in the office. She's fine, but we do need to call an ambulance and this and that and the other. Um, They're taking her to Williamson County Medical Center. Mm. Okay, I'm on my way. Yeah. Don't know what's going on. They run a whole battery of tests. Long story short, the cookout's canceled because through a series of blood work and oncologists and the whole battery of tests, Marsha has leukemia. So from Memorial Day 1998 to February 1999, she spent every day except for one seven-day stretch at Vanderbilt 11 North, mm-hmm. which is the cancer wing yeah. at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Radiation, chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. Our world is turned upside down. Yeah, crack in the universe kind of stuff. This shouldn't happen. She doesn't deserve this. Um, this is so random. How can this happen? Why is this happening to us? Through Christmas was the week that they sent her home. Her immune system was was way down right after her bone marrow transplant. So the week that she was home, she ended up contracting a virus and a fungus and just went downhill from there by February, the day before Valentine's Day, ironically, but not. February 13th, the day that she died, which is my father's birthday. I called him that night, Uh 10.32 at night, our time, two hours behind on the West Coast, to tell her that she was gone was the first time, I was 32 at the time, was the first time I had ever heard my father cry in my life. Hmm. He said, I'll be right there. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. And he was. He showed up the next day. So did my uncle and aunt and several family members from Indiana. My mom showed up. Just very sudden, very unexpected. Well, again, all this anger in me. Um, Don't know how to deal with grief don't know how to deal with these losses. So I begin to self-medicate, begin to drink a lot, just looking for anything to take away the pain. And it was also at that time that I, again, was very angry with people. Yeah. I began to withdraw from people that I had spent time with at a church. Mm-hmm. But through all this, my dad says, hey, why don't you come take a trip? So in June of 99, I fly out to Reno because my father is there. And we spent the next 10 days just kind of driving down from Reno. We played golf there. We played golf where we used to live in Lake Wildwood. We drove down, played Pebble Beach, Santa Barbara, and just basically made our way back down to my dad's house. Once again, a wonderful gesture. Yeah. And it was at that point that I did kind of feel like our relationship, 
I I'd never I'd never had that with him. Okay. Here I was, thirty two years old, a grown man, had been married for twelve years, and this is the first time I'm actually having a real conversation with my father mm-hmm. on real things, real emotional issues. Nothing, not stuffing the family problems, but just talking about them, right? Grieving through them. It was great. I thought this is different. In the process of my spiraling, though, um, I did a lot of destructive things. What's that mean? I the destructive things that I did was I began to drink a lot heavier. Okay, I began to try to numb my pain with um, easier drugs at first, then later harder drugs. Um, cocaine became my drug of choice. Um, reason being is because it didn't feel like I didn't feel like it impaired me. It, it made my mind really race and and go, but it took away all the bad feelings of feeling depressed and feeling numb and feeling sad. Made me feel alive. So we're talking in what two thousand from two thousand to two thousand six. So six years, yeah, of hard living, yeah, self medicating, yeah isolating yes dealing with new anger yes and it was also at that time that my second wife again who was family friends she was close with marcia as well she was in the process of getting a divorce we were just kind of there for each other through the grieving yeah yeah and we got together okay and it was a relationship purely based on the physicality of relationships. Yeah. Again, the adventure and the escapisms uh-huh. of a lot of things. And I didn't really feel like I was in a place to really be married again. So I resisted. But again, like any relationship that progresses, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So finally I relented. We got married. But both of you were pretty wounded. Yeah. Not, not just wounded. you. It was a very unhealthy mm-hmm relationship from the start and yet it was one that i took a lot of pride in or was very if anybody had a criticism of it i was very quick to defend it because i felt like she was the only one that was really there for me i see so we medicated together Mm -hmm. again here here comes my here comes my wonderful father um as we say we're gonna get married he says well hey let me take care of your honeymoon Mm. You come on out to San Diego, and I'll put you up at the, uh, I'll put you up at the Del Coronado. Wow, um, wonderful hotel. Yeah, for anybody no, that knows no. the history of it, and my first child was conceived at that on that honeymoon. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Now, so, okay. So your oldest uh, was conceived during that honeymoon, yes. and and what's going on with you with the hard living? Is that still happening? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And she's. She's aware of it. She's tolerant of it. She's she's all in. At first, she was all in, and then I think again, it's kind of like when <laughs> again here we'll, we'll have a movie reference, right? It's the Patrick Swayze Point Break okay. reference, okay? <laughs> Where eventually one of the guys in the crew says, "Whoa," <laughs> and he's like, "No, we're all in. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep going." That was me. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep going. And she's like, whoa, I'm, I got to slow down. The main thing was, you could even ask her to this day, she knew she was pregnant yeah. right then. Okay. Something just told her, this is it. Yep. She's going to stop. Yeah, time to change. She quit smoking. She quit doing everything. Meanwhile, 
this is me. This is how deep I am. I am trying to figure out a way to take cocaine with me on the plane to San Diego. Wow. So that I don't miss it. And I realized that was idiotic. So then I tried to convince a friend to ship me some while I'm there. For even your honeymoon. St- even stupider. Have your friend ship it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's how far gone I was. So, yeah, I withheld for a week until I could get back. But it was an excruciating week, to say the least. Okay. And so you become a father pretty soon after. Yes. So let's get into that because we've yet to talk about you as a father. Yes. So how does that play out? And again, out? forgive me for running long-winded with no, all of that. No, this is all part of it. But all of that really brings me to a place that makes me question myself as a father. Okay. Good and bad. When both of my sons were born, I was high. There in the hospital, I was I was medicated. Well, now, real quick, when was your second? How how far apart are they? They're years? they're three years. Okay, two thousand four and two thousand seven. Okay, so you did continue to use cocaine at least three years more because you were high. Yeah, for I, your second as well as I your ne- first. I never I never really stopped. Okay. okay, I kept going. Gotcha. Again, all in an attempt to numb this pain of all these things that I had left unresolved. What was unresolved? Was it the 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 music career stuff? Yes. Was it was it your wife passing from leukemia? Was yes. it your dad? Was it all of it? All of it. It was all of it. Yes. All right, keep going. And just when I would think something would be resolved or it would be okay, it would come back up. Just as I would try to venture back into something musical and I think, okay, this is good. Something would fall through. And I would spiral back down feeling like i could never catch a break yeah not the case but again the mentality of an addict is someone who is living in constant desperation Hmm. i I literally planned my entire day around my usage wow again i wanted to be the responsible husband and father Uh i stopped pursuing music i got a corporate job um, had a pretty good one with a very large um, beverage company that we would all be familiar with. Spent a number of years there, but I was I was a functioning user. Yeah, I felt like it made me better at my job. I just felt like I couldn't do it without it, which again is a lie. But that was where I was mentally yeah. at the time. Both my sons are born. Um, we're happy. Things are good, but I'm still using. I'm lying to her. I'm deceiving her. She knows it, and she keeps putting up with it. Fast forward to 2007. The company does a random test, which I fail. Oh, yeah. And they send me home. So I show up home early. What are you doing home? I had to break it to her. Mm Mm-hmm. She began to pack the car and the kids, and she was going to be gone. I convinced her to stay. Okay. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but she did. Mm-hmm. Are they aware at this point? I don't know how old. They- One is three, and the other is less than a year old. Yeah, they're they pretty, are completely they're, unaware. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
cocaine actually kind of became your new beach of refuge. Absolutely. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, I felt like I needed it to be a good father. I needed it because I got up so early to go to that job and I expelled so much energy mentally in the performance of that job that by the time I came home, I had nothing left. So without the drug, I couldn't engage my family. Interesting. Which again was a lie because it, it wasn't the case. I, right. I had convinced myself that I needed it to just function or do anything mm. in life. So you convinced her to stay? Yes, I convinced her to stay. And the irony that day, too, is um, I had, when I had to explain to her what had happened and why, I had literally had a new bag in my pocket. But I was so afraid that the law was going to be involved at that point. In other words, I wasn't just going to lose my job, but that the police were going to show up and I was going to get taken to jail. I was going to be convicted. I was going to become a felon. I was going to, again, all the what ifs, right. which none of those things came out to play. But it was enough of a wake-up call that I told her, I said, and here's how I made her stay. I showed her what I had in my hand, in my pocket. And I said, come here, I want to show you. And I threw it in the toilet. Mm. And I flushed it. Yeah. And I haven't touched any of it since then. That was the end. That was the end completely cold turkey, stopped, didn't make it easy. Um, the physical withdrawals are very painful. Let's timestamp this real quick. So okay. that was 2000. That was seven. End of 2006, beginning of 2007. And you've been clean ever since. Yes. Okay. There's more to the story, but let's just suffice it to say between the deception of that and much of the foundation that our marriage was built on, I was hoping that it would last but it it didn't, which once again kind of sent me spiraling in depressed mode. All the while thinking I was kind of hoping not to be divorced because for me it was such an impactful thing on me as a child. I didn't want to put my kids through that. Right. On the other hand, they were much younger than I was mm-hmm. when it happened. Mm-hmm. And... Thankfully, what ended up happening was because they were younger, they did go with the flow a little more. Um, again, because of the volatility of our relationship, we were both very erratic, moody, high highs, low lows, a lot of yelling, a lot of arguing, yeah. a lot of fighting inside a home. That all stopped once I realized she was leaving. Okay. She wants to go. It's over. All of that fighting stopped. All of that need to be right. All of that convince this, do this. I'm not a fan of divorce. In our situation, I do believe that our kids, who are now, again, 13 and 9, soon to be 10. He'll be 10 next week. Our kids are actually more well-adjusted now because they're not in an environment that is so volatile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I'm thankful for. Yeah. That 
my kids are not in a place where yelling is the answer. Right. Where fighting is the norm. Mm -hmm. There is peace in the house. And yeah, they're two boys. They're going to fight over everything, right? Nerf basketball to PlayStation. But conflict resolution is something that's a real reality and proactivity in understanding their hearts to me is something that I have tried to take very seriously really since the moment of tossing that bag in the toilet I had come to the end of myself I'd come to the very bottom Mm. once again it was faith that came back to me Mm. because where I had told my ex before when we were married I'm never setting foot in a church again it was shortly after that while job hunting that I ran into somebody who I found out was a pastor who had a very similar story to mine He'd been an alcoholic. He'd been a cocaine user. He was a musician. Here's a place for you. Yeah. And we became fast friends. And again, I don't blame my ex because I know that she had, she was very skeptical. You don't lie to somebody for six years and not have trust issues. Sure. She didn't believe me. She thought I was just going to this church so that I could play drums. Yeah. But it was more than that. It was, it was true heart transformation, true bottoming out true renewal of identity in the person of Jesus. Again, without getting too preachy or, you know, it was a revival of heart for me. I known those things. I intentionally had suppressed them and did not want to live them. My heart had stopped twice while using the cocaine and both times I thought I was going to die and both times I didn't. Mm. So in my mind, after the fact, there was a reason Mm -hmm that that had occurred. Well, and and the, yes. fact that, the fact that you were able to apply a piece of who you are to this new community setting, I mean, good on you. It's, two for, it's a two for one. Yeah. I mean, you're getting community and you're, you're getting to rebuild uh, with a support system around you, yes. but you're also still able to uh, do something that you love very much. It, it seems to me that that is why you're very content to be so behind the scenes because you truly love to be able to just show up and say, you know, hey, I can, I can play this, I can play this. You know, wh- where where do you need me, and yes. where's the need at? And you're you're able to truly give a part of yourself to yeah. this community that you found yourself in now. I feel like every dad out there should have an opportunity to truly hear something uh, real and from the heart from their child. They probably crave it and they don't get a chance to hear it sometimes. I know at least during my kids' younger years, you know, you, you hope that you're going to hear all these great things about, oh, dad, you're, you're great at this and, and this and that. And, and the reality is they're, they're being kids. They're doing their thing. Yes. But dads, whether they would say it or not, they, they want to be affirmed just as much as the next person, right? Yes. And every dad has something that they would want to be able to, to, to tell another dad. Yes. You know, in light of that, I want you for your dad to be able to say something that you learned from him that you truly appreciate. Okay. And maybe if you just really cut to the chase, what is something that you're most grateful to him for? I, I would start by saying this. When I was 12, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot or a navigator. Because I was so proud of my dad and his accomplishments in the things that he did in serving our country. 
And what I would want to tell my dad, to cut to the chase, like you said, is that in many ways, in, in every way, I am who I am because of him. The drive that I have is from him. Mm-hmm. The don't take no for an answer, the tenacity is from him. The pursuit of excellence in whatever it is that I'm going to do is from him. The desire, and again, I don't know that I've ever heard my dad say this, but my dad is a very generous person when it comes to his money toward other people. Yeah. I want to be like that. Yeah. I want to be more generous with the things that I have. I've joked with people when it comes to when we've talked about dating and such. I always tell people that I'm my dad without means. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, he he loves great food, he loves great wine. He knows how to wine and dine. Uh-huh. He knows how to create an experience. And I appreciate that because the same drive that he has to pursue his passions, he has instilled in me. But I don't think I've ever told him that. Hmm. I think that one of the things that I love to do the most is to make him laugh. To get my dad to actually genuinely deep belly laugh is one of the greatest things. I take the greatest joy in that. Yeah. And so I, I guess in that way, what I would like to communicate to him is the art of the great story is from him. Mm, yeah. The love of movies, the love of music, the love of the arts, the love of beauty. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- to watch an airplane fly is majestic. But dad told me long ago, he's like, you don't want to join the Air Force. <laughs> and I'm like, why not? He's like, well, you're terrible at listening to people. <laughs> You'll get thrown in the brig because you won't want to do what anybody tells you to do. It's not all flying. It's not all flying, no. But the intent is right. He he did know me more than I gave him credit for. Yeah. There's a crazy thing that happens, too, when you get to a certain point as an adult, as a father, where you start to realize, oh... It's not so easy being a father. Right. <laughs> it's not so easy be- being an adult. Yeah. It's not so easy. All those things I was yeah. so angry at him about or the things that frustrated me. It's like now I'm having to somehow work through this on my own. And I don't know. It probably happens to different people at different times when they come to that sobering realization. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but our own kids are probably a daily reminder of it, yes. right? You know, we, we want to try life. to fix things yeah. that that were you know where we messed up. We probably try to uh, find ways to right wrongs and things sure. of that nature, and and have teachable moments, and have teachable. This moments. is this is this is why this is why you shouldn't do this or say this when yeah. because this is what a real man does or doesn't do. Yeah. All of those things are teachable moments. But I think one of the things that I look back on my own story with in relationship to my own kids is that I want to be my kid's biggest fan. Hmm. My kids were so excited one day. My kids called me one day and they're like, Dad, come out here. Talk about in the garage, in the studio setup. I'm like, why? And they're like, 
we've got something we want to play for you. And one of them was on the drums and one of them was playing his guitar and they were just playing along to a song. And the reason that they wanted me to come out was because they wanted me to hear what they were playing for me. Yeah. And it hit me in that moment. I thought, you know what? I could be a real jerk here. I could be critical or I could understand the purpose because the look on their faces was just pure joy. They were doing what they were doing to play for me. And I was overjoyed. Yeah. The notes mattered not. It was all about the heart. I tell that story a lot Mm -hmm. because it's not about the perfection of your notes. It's about your heart for who you're playing for. Right, right. And if you realize that your father is overjoyed in looking at the joy on your face to play for him, you can forget your notes. Mm. Yeah, you want to bring your best. You want to prepare and do those things. But in the end, it's joy. That's a nice moment that you got to have with your boys where you got it right. Yeah. Because... Yeah, of all the messed up times, I did feel like that was a grace. Well, uh, an easy thing would be to be like, well, it's my job to help and instruct them here and to speak into this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you somehow, some way, you realize I'm supposed to just receive this, just listen, and let them just perform for me because that gives them sheer joy. You got that one right, man. I did. You got that one really right. I felt like I really, I hit the grand slam on that one. You should be proud of yourself. Whereas many a times I've stepped into the box and swung on three pitches. Yeah. I I try to think about those moments. You asked earlier, what would I want to say to any dads out there? Your enthusiasm and your encouragement for your kids' likes will make you their biggest hero in their eyes. Um, I did not go to every one of my oldest son's football games. It was a Saturday. Sometimes I had to play a gig. Sometimes I was in the studio. I didn't make it to all the games, but I asked him about every play. When my youngest played basketball, same kind of thing. How did you feel that you did? Not critiquing his play, telling him, you know, not be one of these crazy dads in the stand, but afterwards saying, hey, you played hard. You did well. I saw that. I saw that steal. I saw that block. I saw that great pass. Those little moments of encouragement are the things in my mind that make them know that I'm I'm a fan. That's awesome. You know, I think one of the the... the biggest questions that as dads that we should ask ourselves is why am I a dad? Mm-hmm. Not not where is my career going next, not what are my list of accomplishments, nothing about credentials, but why am I a dad? You have a thirteen year old and a nine year old mm-hmm. son. You're a single dad mm-hmm. and you you know, a guy who, who grew up in all kind of all over, right? Yeah. Through all the highs and lows into your adulthood years, how your father uh, informed who you were in many ways, mm-hmm. going through the different grief that you had to go through, uh, losing your first wife, mm-hmm. all and in, in moving forward, self-medicating, everything that has happened to you, you know, you still right now are a father to these two boys. Yeah. So why, Chris, are you a dad? In your opinion, why are you a dad? You know, when you put it in that way, it's absolutely not based on merit. In other words, I'm, I'm not a dad 
just because their mom and I got together. A dad is somebody that draws near. For me, the answer, why am I a dad? It is purely a gift. It's a gift and a privilege that I get to participate in the lives of two people that I can be granted this kind of access to. One of the things I didn't mention as far as now, I'm trying to finish up, and I will soon, I'll finish up a bachelor's in psychology. It's at the place at this point in school where the powers that be want you to determine, okay, which school of thought are you going to pursue? Mm-hmm. I've been very resistant to that because I don't necessarily think that one particular school of psychology answers all of our questions. I will give you a case in point. If you're to follow Freud's school, that basically means that all development ends by the time you're 18. Mm-hmm. So any issue that you have from 18 on in life can be determined by something that went amiss. I don't necessarily agree with that. So one of Freud's protégés later on, a man named Eric Erickson, said, okay, there's some substance to that, but let's build on that. So Erickson built, instead of just having six levels, there are nine. The one that I currently and you and I find ourselves in is that age frame from 40 to 55 where we move in one of two directions. We either move toward what would be defined as mentoring or passing on to the next generation or you move further into isolation, meaning you become withdrawn Mm -hmm. and you feel like you have nothing of substance Mm -hmm. to offer. I think that that stage of life is crucial as a father because despite all the other junk that goes on, you have been given the privilege of pouring into another life. Yeah. And that's big. That's big. The hair on my arms just stood up because (laughs) it's overwhelming. I, I, I don't know how to measure up to that. I don't. That is the place that I find myself in is that I get the privilege and the gift of pouring what I know into these two little minds to become men who will use their skills, use their gifts to do the same thing, to pour into somebody else or to grow in isolation. Hmm. And Erickson said that was the big stage in the later development because what ends up happening is if you don't move into that mentoring type stage, most men die shortly after that. In other words, that's where your purpose ceases or you feel like you cease having a purpose. I'm not talking about careers. I'm not talking about gold records. I'm not talking about awards for films. Right. Again, we're just talking about the, the breakdown of life that says it doesn't matter how much money I have in the bank. It doesn't matter what kind of car I drive. It doesn't matter the clothes I'm wearing or all of the things that the culture might define as success. Mm -hmm. Success is defined in how is this person moving along? Mm. So while I feel overwhelmed in thinking about that for my own kids, I also look back and think, okay, well, how does that apply to my dad? And I give my dad two thumbs up, Mm. (laughs) which is, again, another thing that I want him to hear. You did great. Thank you. 
thank you for everything. Because without the good and the bad and the ugly, right, I'm not who I am right in this moment. What's your dad's name? My dad's name is Ed. So Ed. Ed McKim. Ed, you should be proud of your son. He's he's a good one. He's definitely a good one. And there's a simple encouragement for all dads out there, I feel like, from something that you just said about your your personal purpose with your boys and that is uh, it's a very simple encouragement dads but you know every day you you get an opportunity to make a choice if you're going to step in or if you're going to step out yeah when it comes to your relationship with your children and there are days when it's much harder than others but that opportunity is a daily gift to them uh, sometimes it is to us, but it's always a daily gift to them when we just step in, especially when it's hard, yeah. especially when the tension's there. Yeah. Um, it, it, when you talked about, you know, when you're able to just kind of silently receive something that they've performed for you, that's stepping into the relationship. Those yeah. are, those are the good moments. Those are the, and those moments we can redeem those things. Yeah. We, the, there's opportunity right now, tomorrow morning, Every day there's opportunity just to, to step in. So if you find yourself isolating like Chris was talking about, you can step in right away. It may not fix everything, but man, what a, what a quick change that can make uh, if, you know, if you can just start with that. And even um, to piggyback on what you just said right there yeah. reminds me of those moments where having that quick Irish temper that yeah. I have where the voice goes up and boom, it's – I'm – I'm taking control here. Right. I'm putting you guys in your place. Even in those moments where I lose it, I have to come back to the knowledge that in that moment, even after I've cooled down, I have a chance to apologize to my kids. Apologizing, yes, for my reaction to them while still being able to address, this is what set me off. Being able to communicate my emotions to them enables them to communicate their emotions with me. Mm. So even in my blunders and even in, um, even in my mistakes, yeah. like you said, we can either move forward or we can check out. I checked out for many years. I'm tired of checking out. Chris, I want you to end on what I call uh, the two-minute legacy. I want you just to think for just a second. You were saying a moment ago about things that you would share with other fathers. I appreciate all the things that you've shared, the the transparency, the the things that you've struggled through. You've got an amazing life story. You've been through a lot of things. Um, But if you were to imagine with me that in, in two minutes... The mics shut down, the influence shuts down, and you really only have two minutes to say what your two-minute legacy is yeah. to your boys. What, what is it that you want to say, if you could boil it down? I want my boys to know that they are loved for who they are, not because of what they do, that they are adored by me not based on, again, the things that they do, but just because they're mine. And in that way, I dote on them. I think about them. I don't begrudge them. I want them to know that I'm constantly thinking about them. I'm thinking about 
their their well-being. I'm thinking about the things that they take joy in. And I want them to laugh. I want them to love and enjoy things, but don't obsess about them. And I want them in turn to pass that on to somebody else. I want them to know that their identity is not wrapped up in the things that they do alone, but who they belong to. And I want them to know that they have purpose because there's somebody out there for them that they will meet and have kids with. It may not be perfect. It may be rocky, but there's reason behind it. And they'll get to do the same thing. They'll get to have the same privilege that I've had. And I wouldn't trade a thing. I wouldn't trade anything in my story. I wouldn't go back and want to do it all over again to avoid this pain because it's the things that have gone through that have brought me to this point that make me appreciate everything for them. Well, Chris, I appreciate you as a friend and as a father. I've enjoyed sitting under the stars with you tonight. Same here, David. This is great. about life stuff. Um, you're a good man. Well, thank you. And again, thank you for the privilege of coming and talking, getting to share some of these things. Um, I have to confess, I was a little, I was a little hesitant at first. <laughs> how much do I, how much of the curtain do I peel back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a freedom in being able to, like we talked about at the beginning, be transparent right, right. about it. And the good news is you're friends with the editor. And the good news is I'm not running for president either. <laughs> so, you know, the Washington Post is going to come crawling through my closet That's looking right. for all my skeletons. That's right. Well, I do appreciate you doing this. There's nothing to me greater than being able to hear other people's stories and experiences. And uh, I know, Chris, that just in the short time that we've been sitting together, I'm a little bit wiser. And so I just want to say thanks one more time. Appreciate you. Again, thank you, David. Um, right, privilege is all mine. This is wonderful that what you're doing, and I'm greatly enriched just from talking with you about it. Thanks, man. Thank you, buddy. And so until next time, put down your phones and hug your kids. Dad Matters is produced and edited by David Wilkinson and mixed by Josh Myers. I want to thank Chris McKim for coming on the podcast and sharing his story with all of us. Dads, I want you to know that the season finale is coming up in just two short weeks, and you're going to get to hear from my friend and guest dad, John Milton. If I could hope anything from my life, it would be that I gave my kids every opportunity to excel in life. It would be that, not that they would make me proud. I don't want them just to make me proud. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about them being the kid, the adult, the parent that the Lord would have them be. That's guest dad John Melton for this final episode of season one of Dad Matters. And I hope that you stick around for season two. More on that in just two short weeks. Thanks, dads. Thanks, dads.